the premium really needs to be in that range I told you about before, 750 million to a billion. Well, this year, if you look at the launches this year, there have been more launches this year already than in any other year since 2010, except for one year. So there have been a lot of launches this year. The insurance premium this year is the lowest it's been since 2010. And that's because a lot of the launches this year are not insured. So for example, Starlink doesn't insure their launches. They're just launching lots and lots of satellites and hope to, you know, the, they, they assume a certain failure rate, but they'll have enough up there they can complete their system. So with fewer insured launches, but more activity, we're not going to see the market premium increase to the point where it will be sustainable for the long term in 2020. It'll take 2021, 2022 before things really start picking up. That's really the dynamic that has got us in the hole in the first place and that is affecting the way we do business now. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. I'm your host, Jason Cadigan, the founder of This Thing, Cold Star Technologies, a data science and process improvement firm, helping space companies who want to know what the heck is really going on inside their business. And I'm real happy to be here today with Chris Kunstadter of uh, AXA XL. It's an insurance type company, big uh, company. He's the global head of space, um, runs a four person team and has been there a long time. Uh, this is your 15th year in that role, huh? Yeah, been there since 2006. Um, I was with another company running their space group from uh, 84 to 2006. So I've been in the business for about 36 years. Yeah, you have a lot of experience to share. And I got to say, Chris, uh, I kept bumping into people as soon as I got into the, the money side of space who kept telling me you got to talk to Chris. <laughs> uh, so I'm really glad to have you on. Uh, and we had a good chat yesterday to hone in on some great questions and uh, topic areas. And we're going to talk a lot more about policy than, uh, than I at first had thought, um, because you really get into that area. But let's begin with something. You did something early on in your career. And, and a lot of the folks who listen to this show are students. And I want to encourage them uh, to know that they have a lot more control over their career than, than a lot of them think they do. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. They get to go out and pick what they want if they want to do that instead of sending out uh, what I will call caveman tools of job search, sending out a blizzard of resumes at a whole bunch of opportunities and hoping somebody calls you back. I, I much prefer the uh, create your own job or pick something very specific. So you did what mm -hmm. I coach people to do, which is find something you love to talk about all day. Absolutely. And then go and figure out a way to uh, make money doing that. And I think that's just brilliant. So in your case, it was airlines originally. Uh, and the business was insurance. And so, you know, how has that affected your happiness over your career? That's an interesting question. So uh, I'll, I'll go back a little bit further and say my bachelor's degree was in French literature. So yeah. I, uh, I, I love to write and I love to, to uh, you know, happen to be interested in uh, French poetry of the, of the 19th century. So in, as an undergrad, I got my degree in um, French literature. Then I went to graduate school and got a uh, master's in transportation engineering. At the, uh, while I was getting my uh, master's degree, I worked as a pilot and a flight instructor in California. And what I was interested in when I was uh, in grad school was airline economics. Why do airlines buy the aircraft they do? Why do they fly the routes they do? So fleet management, route management, Sort of aircraft design with the idea that maybe, you know, maybe I'd uh, start an airline someday. Well, it was around the time of deregulation in the early 80s. So the airline business was in turmoil. So it was really more fun to actually be a spectator than a participant. 
uh, so I worked as a pilot, but I didn't get into the airline business. I watched it from afar and I ended up getting a job with an insurance company here in New York uh, doing airline insurance. So we, uh, we insured a lot of the, the major airlines. Um, my accounts were all the West Coast Airlines at the time. It was Alaska Airlines, World Airways, um, Continental Airlines. And um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a really interesting way to see not how a particular airline does their fleet and route management, but to see how all the airlines across the board did that and to compare those, those styles. So then in 1984, I was asked to take over the space insurance group at the company I was with at the time. And uh, didn't know a whole lot about space except for having watched Gemini and Apollo launches when I was a kid. Um, but obviously it's a very exciting business and um, uh, I managed to, um, to really learn quickly and um, again recognize that space is a business where a lot of companies do things in a lot of different ways. So for me it was a great way to see how different companies um, you know, start, how they develop, how they grow, how they make, you know, the right decisions, the wrong decisions, how things fail, how technology fails sometimes. And um, it, it's, I will say it's, it's really been a fascinating job and every day I'm learning something new. Mm -hmm. Even 36 years uh, later, I'm learning, obviously, new applications, new technologies. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And I would say that People who are, you know, if you're young and you're you're interested in a particular subject, that's great. You know, don't don't forget to broaden your mind and learn how to write well, learn how to, uh, you know, be a critical thinker and, and all that. That's that's very important in any type of business or any type of field. Right, right. Wow, the the early to mid '80s, very tumultuous yeah. time. Pan Am probably was yeah. still around. And, yeah, people uh, express all those. There was a uh, air traffic controllers strike that. Yep. President Absolutely. Reagan had to intervene on that I remember about, and we're in the we're in the I don't know space shuttle had been around five six years something like that right yeah, so yeah. Very I remember different. watching the very first space shuttle flight mm. back and I think it was what eighty one eighty two whenever it was yeah mm -hmm. so how I don't know if you remember that meeting or was it a, a document or something where uh, I mean it's a long time ago where they suddenly told you hey uh, Chris you're going to be the space guy now well, well <laughs> you remember what that was like yeah they. Uh, the boss called me in and said, uh, the fellow who's uh, running the space group wants to go pursue other things. And, with you know, at the time, I was working for an insurance company that was very old-fashioned, still used the old crank style adding machines uh -huh. and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> and and uh, uh, there, there were no fax machines. Everything was telex. And uh -huh. um, they said, Chris, you're the only one who knows how to use a computer around here. How would you like to run the space group? Wow. <laughs> and the computer at the time was... a. Uh, I think it was an Apple IIe or something mm -hmm. like that. And I thought about it for a day and, and said, sure, that sounds great. I'd love to do it. So. Huh. What an interesting qualifier. Yeah. <laughs> You're the guy who knows how to run the computer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In a company of 300 people or whatever it was. Right. It's a, so obviously over time, commercialization of space has opened up a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, mm -hmm. Things are not uh, the way I would like exactly for them to be in terms of the business of space. Uh, mm -hmm. There's still a lot of focus on the DOD and government, NASA and all that as customers. Um, and I, I really am looking forward to seeing more business or, or um, sure. public commercial. Purchasers, you know? Absolutely. But um, what areas of space insurance and products and that does your team focus on? Uh, is, there, is there anything you avoid? What, what types of projects are you involved in? That's a good question. So the phrase I use is that we embrace risk. Um, 
we're an insurance company. We're paid to take risk. So let's find a way, no matter how strange or wacky or run of the mill it is, let's find a way to, to, to write the business. That's what we're here for. We're, we're compensated to, to write insurance. So we try not to let uh, technologies or business plans or crazy ideas, you know, scare us away. Uh, we'd much rather say, let's find a way to do it than, um, than uh, to say, no, that's too, too crazy. So an example of that is that over the last several years, obviously with the growth in small satellites, we have, um, uh, we've seen a lot of small companies, uh, whether they're small sat manufacturers or small sat operators, they'll buy a satellite, they'll, they'll have it built, they'll have it shipped to the launch site, and then they'll have it launched. Well, the insurance for the uh, transportation of the satellite from the factory to the launch pad and then the launch processing, that insurance is done, has traditionally been done by the marine insurance market, the, 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 the insurance companies who do ships and trains and transportation and that sort of thing, logistics. Um, and because the values are so small for some of these satellites, it could be $50,000 or $100,000 to make that business worthwhile, insurance companies have to charge a lot of money mm -hmm. to make it worthwhile because there isn't a lot of volume. Then uh, several years ago when the um, uh, SpaceX rocket blew up on the launch pad um, with the Amos 6 on board during, during fueling testing, um, uh, that scared a lot of the insurance companies away from that pre-launch business. So what we did is we realized, hey, there's a market for insuring those small satellites um, during the pre-launch phase. So we came up with a product that we call seamless, uh, insurance, which is, uh, we call it from loading dock to orbit. So basically we'll cover the satellite up, up to $5 million, or we can even go more than that from the factory where it's built to the you know, on a truck or an airplane or however it's done to the launch site, the preparation for launch, the loading it onto the rocket and, and then the launch and deployment, which we would traditionally have done. So by, by trying to be innovative and trying to find ways to solve these problems, it's really been very successful for us. Okay. I imagine you're pooling the risk of a number of those small sets across that one product line. There. We like to do that. So uh, we like rideshare programs. There's a, yeah. uh, uh, there's a, um, a Vega launch vehicle, European Vega mm -hmm. launch vehicle going up in, um, uh, I think, shortly, <laughs> weeks or months, weeks or a month. Uh, and that's going to have 53 satellites on it. We're going to be insuring some of those satellites, uh, you know, a, a not insignificant uh, number of those satellites. So that gives us the opportunity then, yes, to build up a portfolio across across that launch. Speaking of Vega, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the space insurance industry is upside down right now um, because of a major loss um, last year yeah. for the most part. Uh, was there anything that insurance companies could have done on the lead up to that? It seemed that the market got a little soft. Um, premiums mm -hmm. have doubled to quadrupled yep. in the in the intervening time. Um, do you think there's? And I don't want you to talk smack about the, the no, space no, no, no. insurance field, but do you no, think no, no, there no, might be a little group think yeah. going on in there, or what's well, that, the you know what's yeah. been going on here? So uh, it's 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 actually very simple, and it's it's. It's traditional microeconomics, it's supply mm -hmm. and demand. And what I mean by that is from, let's say 2000 to 2012, mm -hmm. the annual premium into the space insurance market was roughly between 750 million and a billion dollars a year. The losses were anywhere from 50 million a year to close to a billion dollars a year. 
So generally, the premium was sufficient to, um, to pay the losses that occurred. And the losses were very volatile. You could have a $50 million a year and then an $800 million a year. Um, so that volatility meant that insurance companies needed to build up some sort of a bank. Since 2012, the business got very, very competitive. So there was a lot of capital in the market. And again, pure supply and demand, if there's more capital than you need, that's going to result in uh, fights over prices. At the same time, while the peak insured value of, um, of a launch could be as high as $800 million, we've had several $800 million launches, more and more of these small sat launches that are insured are insured for a million, 10 million, 100 million. So the way we look at our allocation of capital is on a per exposure basis, say a per launch basis. So with more small values, there was even more competition. Mm -hmm. So that the, the $800 million worth of capacity that's in the insurance, that was in the insurance market was fighting over these $800 million launches, but also these $50 million launches. So it just resulted in a very, very steep decline. And essentially from 2012 to uh, 2019, space insurance pricing dropped by 50%. So in 2019, we had a very bad year, about $800 million of losses, not out of family, right? Mm -hmm. It's not out of family with history, with historical losses. So the losses were in family. It's just that the premium had dropped so significantly that it couldn't cover the losses. So what happened was, again, supply and demand, um, companies reassessed their participation in the space insurance business. They said, this is very volatile. This is very difficult. There just isn't enough business and it's too competitive. So we'll pull out. So by reducing the overall capacity in the space insurance market, we were able to, um, uh, not we were able to, the market as a market uh, increased prices. Um, so prices have increased somewhat. Um, that's good. That helps us because we're no longer in a very deep hole. From 2017 through 2019, well, through the beginning of 2020, we've had about 1.6 or $1.7 billion worth of losses and about a billion dollars worth of premium. And that is not sustainable. Prices have to go up. One of the, one of the difficult factors is, so let's take last year, 800 million of losses, 500 million of premium. The premium really needs to be in that range I told you about before, 750 million to a billion. Well, this year, if you look at the launches this year, there have been more launches this year already than in any other year since 2010, except for one year. So there have been a lot of launches this year. The insurance premium this year is the lowest it's been since 2010. And that's because a lot of the launches this year are not insured. So for example, Starlink doesn't insure their launches. They're just launching lots and lots of satellites and hope to, you know, the, they, they assume a certain failure rate, but they'll have enough up there. They can complete their system. So with fewer insured launches, but more activity, um, we're not going to see the market premium increase to the point where it will be sustainable for the long term in 2020. It'll take 2021, 2022 before things really start picking up. That, that's really the dynamic that has, you know, that got us in the hole in the first place and that is, is um, affecting the way we do business now. Okay. Now, 
it seems to me though kind of crazy that insurance companies would rely purely on the premium to cover possible losses surely they don't they must have a fund somewhere like if i was running a warranty department i would have a fund sure that people would pay into and it would be in an offshore <laughs> account no. uh, being invested and accumulating interest and, and dividends and whatnot. And, and uh, that, that is often a great moneymaker for companies that uh, yep. run warranties. And then if there is a problem, they pull money out of that to pay for it. Hmm. Um, so, but, but by the expression you just gave me, I'm imagining mm -hmm. that's going to be off topic. <laughs> and, well, uh, no, it's not. You know, so, and I'll explain. Yeah. It, it, it's actually very simple. Mm -hmm. um, some types of insurance, like life insurance or any sort of liability insurance, has what's called a long tail. You don't know what your losses are going to be for many, many years. So you have the money, you have the cash, you have it, you can invest it, you have the float on it. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, two things work against us. One is insurance rates are, are very low right now. So uh, investment income is low. Insurance companies have to rely on underwriting profit. The second thing is our business is very short tail. In other words, we know if, 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 if from liftoff to deployment of a satellite is 30 minutes, we know in 30 minutes whether we're going to have to pay a claim for that rocket. And we know within a few months if we're going to have to pay a claim for that satellite. So there's no time to invest the money that we take in. We have to make a profit purely on underwriting. So yes, insurance companies indeed do have very significant investments, but for property, short tail property business, which is what space insurance is, there's really no opportunity to invest the money. Okay, that makes sense. And for mm -hmm. those listening who, who haven't really thought about insurance with uh, like life insurance or something like that, uh, you have actuarial tables that have been long known. Um, I can't predict when I will die, but I can predict when people in my age group will die with the high degree the of average, accuracy. Yes, yes. However, mm -hmm. in the space business, we ain't got that. Right. <laughs> yeah. exactly. We just have not been around long enough and done mm -hmm. enough activity to, to mm -hmm. have those statistics. So, we, uh, we know statistics are all we have. So we have to, mm -hmm. you know, to some extent we have to rely on that and the, our sort of, you know, our technical analysis um, but um, we can't you know the the, the variances and the, and the standard deviations are pretty large so mm. we have to take the technical information we have and then apply some factors to it right good old coefficients hi I'm Dylan Taylor chairman and CEO of Voyager Space Holdings and I listen to the Cold Star Project hi I'm Dr. Gordon Ressler the president and founder of Robots in Space and if you want to get the latest in space technologies and business, listen to the Cold Star Project. I'm Alistair Funge, space policy and operations engineer, and I listen to the Cold Star Project. Chris, you've been in the space industry and in the space insurance field for three decades, mm -hmm. and I was very pleased to get find myself in uh, at your your request yesterday in a conversation about space policy. And so you are in this role, uh, much to my surprise, and and. Uh, pleasure of being an influencer on space policy and, and tech development issues um, coming from that space insurance direction. It was, it was great to hear. And so I want to explore some of these issues with you so that uh, our listeners and viewers can hear about them. Um, so let's begin with risk management in space. What mm -hmm. is risk management in space in your opinion? What's your operational definition here? So, so risk management writ large, okay, risk management is, you know, you identify the risks, you assess the impact of them, and then you treat them. You, you take steps to make sure that, that you are able to handle those risks. 
there, there are different types of treatment. There's avoidance. You can say, okay, I just won't do that dangerous thing. There's reduction. I'll put more redundancy on my satellite. There's retention. I'm willing to take that risk. And then there's transfer, which is insurance. So risk transfer is, is the basis of insurance. And um, so as an insurance company, we offer, you know, we, we tell our clients, look, you don't have to buy insurance. You just need to manage your risk. If you want to buy insurance, we sell the insurance and we help you navigate the, the treatment of risk. In terms of the work we do in policy, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a very, very strong team uh, to work with me. So um, uh, it does give me some time to do some business development, some advocacy, some outreach to industry, to governments, to institutions, to try to get people to understand what the issues are that we see that can be um, affected in order to change the way people think. Um, and I would say that the the, the, the main ones that we look at are have to do with space safety, responsible space activity. There, there's, a, there's an insurance company that decided that they would no longer um, provide insurance in low Earth orbit because there is a very strongly increasing risk of collision in low Earth orbit. The collision risk is, is, is not trivial, it's quite significant. And as a result, um, this particular insurance company said, look, why take that risk? Why take that risk? There's not enough money in the low Earth orbit um, insurance business. Um, you know, we're, we're, still, we're still very active in that, in that frame, but, but I talk a lot to my colleagues in um, different insurance companies who say, yeah, low Earth orbit is, is very risky. So what we've done is we've worked with, for example, the U.S. Department of Commerce, the FAA, the... Um, National Space Council, anybody who will listen about, hey, we're an insurance company, we're paid to take risk. In order for us to be able to sustain our business, we need to make sure that, that things are being done to make space safe and uh, to make space actors responsible. So we've worked on things such as technologies, um, regulatory issues, um, industry groups, trying to get people to understand what the real issues are. Technologies, we're very, uh, we've worked very closely with some companies that are developing some small um, uh, beacons to put on satellites. Small, you know, the size of a post-it note or something like that, um, that will transmit a signal every 10 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever, and with a unique identifier. What that does is that allows um, the organizations that are tracking objects in space to, to be able to not only see that object, but to identify it. Now, um, there are a lot of small satellites that are launched, CubeSats and the like, that when they're deployed off the launch vehicle, they just never turn on. So you probably know which one it is, but if you're launching 100 satellites and 10 of them don't work, you might mix them up and not know which one is which. These uh, beacons are um, into Independent of the spacecraft itself, they have a small solar cell they can transmit. Um, so that way, you know what is where and you know who to contact to say, hey, what's your satellite made of? If it hits something, what, what will it do? And that sort of thing. Th these, these are issues that are, um, you know, that, that can only make space safer to operate in. So we believe that all satellites and all rocket bodies that stay in orbit should have a beacon with a unique identifier that's easily, you know, read. Um, it, it's not to, you know, do anything nefarious. It's purely 
to make sure the space is, is um, well characterized. If we know what's up there, if we know what it's doing, if we can say, ah, that's the same piece I saw last week, we know who to uh, talk with and we know what, you know what to avoid. So beacons are very important to us. Another thing that we're very big on is propulsion. If you're above the our orbit of the International Space Station, the ISS, you should have propulsion on board for two reasons. One is collision avoidance. Okay, If there's a potential collision with another object, you want to be able to get out of the way. There are very, very small uh, propulsion systems that even fit on a 3U CubeSat. Take very little power. They don't, you don't need much delta V. You don't need much thrust out of them but they will help you to avoid a collision. More importantly is they'll help you deorbit at the end of your lifetime. If you're, if you're below, say, 650 uh, kilometers orbit, you will probably naturally deorbit within 25 years, but 25 years is a long time. So this will help you speed that up. If you're above um, 650 kilometers, you're gonna be up there for a very long time and a threat to all sorts of objects. So you, it really pays to, to deorbit. And then the third thing, is indeed that 25-year rule. The 25-year, it's really a guideline, uh, sort of a guideline rule, depending on which way you approach it. Um, it says that um, after the end of your operational life, you have 25 years to remove your object from orbit. That was, that was developed about 25 years ago when, the space, when we didn't have constellations of thousands of satellites. We didn't have as much launch activity as we do now. So there just wasn't as much traffic up there. So 25 years was okay. Today, 25 years is not okay. There's too much up there. People need to be responsible. They need to get their objects out of orbit as soon as possible. So we've, um, we've done some work again with policymakers, regulators and the like to say, look, we might wanna consider making that 25 years, five years. In some orbits, maybe even one year if it's a, if it's a very crowded orbit. And there are a lot of very crowded orbits in low earth orbit. Wow. So those are some of the yeah. sort of things we're, we're trying to we're trying to get people to be good actors. We're trying to incentivize them. We're trying to get them to be role models. We want our clients to to be role models and to say yes, we'll do that because it's the right thing to do. As an insurance company, everyone wants an insurance discount. Everybody would like a discount on their insurance. I'm paying too much for my car insurance. Well, everyone's paying into that pool so that those who have the accidents can 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 be reimbursed. And it's not so much that if you do those things, you will get a discount because those, those things like beacons and propulsion and the like, that's sort of the minimum. That's the minimum you can do. So let's say that, that is the, um, that's the minimum. That's not the aspiration. That is the, that's the minimum you can do. If you do more than that, then maybe we will um, uh, you know, give you some sort of an incentive. But if you do less than that, you'll probably get penalized for that. Now, we haven't gone out and said, we're gonna give a surcharge for, if you don't do this, you don't do that, but this is the way we're thinking. Okay. That was so, a very yeah, long, you can long answer <laughs> to your question. Incentivize and punish. Well, yeah. you know, I, I wanna hear it because this is the kind of discussion we need to have. Uh, for, for, again, for listeners and viewers, uh, what we're talking about here is the ability to influence policy and regulation. And 
you know, like when I got into the space field, I thought all this stuff was taken care of. Like, what do you mean they don't have beacons on them and aren't identifiable on that? Well, tell that to a guy like Clint Clark at ExoAnalytic who has cameras mm. trained at the sky, right? And that's, that's what they do for geo-orbit is spot Absolutely. the trail and try and identify that's that satellite. It's not, it doesn't mm -hmm. have a beacon, sorry, <laughs> you know. Now, um, most satellites yeah. are designed to transmit, right? So mm -hmm. we've run into operators who say, oh, don't worry, our satellites all transmit transmit anyway mm -hmm. and they're big enough you'll know what it is mm, yeah if something Maybe. happens it sure would be nice and then you have military who don't want you to know where their satellite is That's and fine. what it is doing necessarily <laughs> and we don't some, expect 100 percent compliance yeah. yeah we don't expect 100 percent compliance um yeah. but any compliance is better than no compliance and so the influence you're bringing to bear i have a lot of this experience from my municipal um mm -hmm past where you can you an idea for uh, changing a bylaw or something like that can come from different levels it can come from the public ratepayer associations community groups committees of council council itself staff municipal staff or imposed from up above and i see parallels here in the space industry where you've got senior governments and regulatory bodies um, down through operators and influence groups and that and then here's the insurance field with money yes. lots of money and that's the kind of the stick <laughs> that you've got where, mm -hmm. look guys, if you make this too scary for us, too risky, we're just not gonna put money into it. We're gonna, we're gonna go insure something else. And, and you know, it's <laughs> kind of harsh, but that is the ultimate uh, threat. And the market will, will make you do that if you have to. I know, you know, a couple of big contributors to the space industry uh, insurance funding got out last year mm, right, after yep. that after that big incident so and you know in terms of uh, to, to to come back to this incentivizing you know if you go mm -hmm. back when i was a kid say in the 60s um seat belts cars didn't have seat belts right, <laughs> right. when seat belts were introduced they were a paid extra you mm. pay extra to have that option Right? Yeah, you can you can have seatbelts, but it's going to cost you. Well, then they realized seatbelts save a lot of lives, mm -hmm. and they became standard. We're looking at that sort of that same model here. Right. And, and, and sometimes it really does take somebody. Uh, well, I think of that was Bob McNamara at Ford, who when he was president okay. of Ford before being Secretary of Defense, he noticed, hey, the body folds in half, and a lot of people are being yeah. impaled on the steering yeah. column. Yeah. Uh, which is a terrible thing. <laughs> so, yeah, we no more Simple of this solution. waste seatbelt. Yeah. We need to have the cross sash, yeah. and it's, it's so, not difficult. Yeah, um, but it uh, sometimes lives have to be uh, taken, unfortunately, Sadly, before yeah. people mm -hmm. will pay any attention to it and yeah. go, "Well, okay, I guess I'll adopt the seatbelt." And then you need a public relations campaign, and still right. people don't use them, and <laughs> police have to go out and find mm -hmm. and assess tickets and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So in what other ways do you believe as, as a space insurance entity, you and your organization can affect government and regulatory uh, policy? We want to, we don't necessarily want to affect regulatory or policy. We'd rather just affect our clients and, and the, the people who rely on space. Mm. So the commercial operators, the governments, the what have you, the scientific community. For example, people say, Chris, you're always saying that uh, we should have more cameras in space for inspection. Are insurance companies going to pay for that? And my answer is usually actually no. It's, it's in the interest of the satellite manufacturer and the satellite operator to know what happened with their satellite. So we're big fans of on-orbit inspection. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all sorts of regulatory issues around it, which is, you know, another subject. But in and of itself, we're not saying we are going to pay because the people who have the most interest in cameras on orbit are the satellite manufacturers and the satellite operators. When something goes wrong, they can go look and say, aha, we'll fix it so it won't happen again. Ergo, a safer space environment. Hmm. Okay. So. I just uh, got hit by a thought. Um, happens occasionally. <laughs> Is there anything do you predict that will happen with uh, with space industry or space insurance funding when we get, uh, say, a Daniel Faber gets gas stations in space going mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. satellites are able to be refueled or or the thing Dennis Wingo invented mm-hmm. that, that Orbital uses to clamp onto the ring of satellites and give them extra life and that and now they're flying around more. Sure. Is that is that extra motion? Uh, moving around in orbits and that going to affect um, the, the premiums at all, do you think, that, that you're expecting customers to pay? I think that the ability to do on-orbit servicing, and we're very involved in that. We're a member of CONFERS, which is a, um, an organization um, that was started by DARPA, but is now um, is much more ubiquitous mm-hmm. and has a lot of international participation. And we look at, um, uh, you know, we're looking at, trying to make on-orbit servicing just much more ubiquitous. Um, On-orbit servicing will be great for insurance because it will help to mitigate losses if a satellite is in orbit and has a problem and it can be fixed. That's a way to reduce the insurance claim. Mm -hmm. Um, The satellite operator wants their satellite up and working in orbit. So to figure out who's going to pay for that on-orbit servicing, that's all to be determined. You know, will it be the insurance company? Will it be the operator? I think there are a lot of things that need to be worked out. Um, nobody wants to throw good money after bad. So if there's a loss of a $300 million satellite in orbit that can be fixed with servicing, but the servicing doesn't work, then you've just spent all that money to uh, to do the servicing. And, you know, if it hasn't worked, then you really have to f- to figure out how that gets paid for. And yeah, and I feel that that would be a claim. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. yep, but absolutely. then again, they touched it. <laughs> right, right, so, exactly. So uh. you get responsibility and all that sort of thing. That's, you know, that's that's the kind of stuff we work on and working through confers and, and other organizations. We're trying mm-hmm. to trying to develop that. Okay, and, and wanting to make that process smooth rather than tied up in, uh, in absolutely some sort nobody of wants to wait arbitration three years. Three years. Yeah. Right, you, nobody wants uh. to wait three years to get that servicing vehicle up there. That's three years of lost revenue. You could build and launch a new satellite in that time. So those are the trade-offs that we need to figure out. Well, this has been very interesting, Chris. So I look forward to having you on again if you're up mm. to it uh, in My a few pleasure. months, let's say, and, and have uh, maybe a slightly different or more in-depth conversation sure. of some of these issues. We'll see what I learn in the meantime yep. and, uh, and what we come up with. In the meantime, where can people run into you, uh, connect with you? What, where should they go? Well, in pre-COVID times, I was, you know, I, I like to say I never met a microphone I didn't like. I give a lot of presentations and speeches at conferences and the like. And, you know, when things start opening up again, I'll certainly be around on the circuit. And But people can always reach out um, uh, to me by email. Uh, it's the easiest way. And it's just my name, Chris Kunstadter. You know, make sure you get the spelling right uh, at axaxl.com. I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll have the address on, you know, when you 
when you provide you the podcast. In the but I, I absolutely welcome people. I've worked with a lot of students who've been um, studying different aspects of space, tried to help them um, understand what, you know, how insurance works, uh, students, uh, startup companies, what have you, even established companies. We're, I'm, I'm always happy to help. I want, I want this to be a safer, better, more responsible place. Excellent. All right. Well, you'll be out there uh, continuing to get awareness uh, on, on these issues. Absolutely. So my guest has been Chris Kunstadter, Global Head of Space at AXA XL. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Hey, this is Jason Cadigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to The Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of The Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page, coldstartech.com MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring, which is what we're all about. And uh, drop in your email address there, and I will be able to do that for you. Make Space Boring is another little show that I run. It's a shorter format, quick interviews, and uh, news of the day, and sometimes an update of who I'm meeting and what I'm learning in the space field. It's on the same Cold Star Tech channel. Speaking of which, on the YouTube channel, I can do something I cannot do on the audio-only version, which is add playlists. And so there may be topic area playlists on the YouTube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks for listening and I look forward to talking to you soon.